Welcome to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. Children of In this episode, Pastor Andrew explores God's Word in 2 Timothy and how we maintain our faith by fixing our eyes on Jesus. At the clergy conference two weeks ago, we were having studies on 2 Timothy and we got very intensely involved in this discussion. The verse that we were discussing was 2 Timothy 4 verses 2 to 3 and it says, go out and preach the word. Go out whether it's an opportune time or not. Reprove, warn and encourage but do so with all patience and instruction needed to fulfill your calling. Now just another translation of the same verse. Preach the word, be urgent in season and out of season, convince, rebuke and exhort, be unfailing in patience and in teaching. And the discussion went into the arena of how difficult it is for priests and bishops to rebuke people. We all draw back from that part of the scriptures that says reprove and rebuke, the negative connotations of all of that and what that involves. I said, I think we're taking this statement fairly negatively as if every time we were to rebuke somebody, it was a confrontation issue. But there are times in our general training and development and the development of our people where correction and rebuke and reproving can be quite a gentle procedure. Now the other passage that has something similar says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. So there again, now it's the word of God that has this role of encouraging and of reproof and of correction. It doesn't mean that we run around Bible bashing people, but when a challenge in Scripture comes to us, we shouldn't try to avoid it or theologically dismiss it, as a number of scholars and theologians do. As I was driving home, I was explaining the conversation to an agent, as well, well, what does the Greek word say? Well, there's a good question for you. So, I made a study of it, and the Greek word is elekos. It means to rebuke, to reprove, and correct. That's what the Greek word means. Now, it's used in a variety of ways, both in the Greek languages and in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but the general sense is that of conviction, of correction, of rebuke, and reprove. And then as I was studying this, I actually noticed that it's also used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now it states, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word for conviction, which also means 
evidence or knowing that it's real is the same word that we used in Timothy for rebuke, for correction, and for reproving. And I thought, okay, if the writer's using that word, what is he trying to get across to us about faith and what it hopes for? But as I was also looking at that passage in the Greek, I noticed another word which is only used here in the New Testament, which is hypostasis. Now, hypostasis is a word that the scholars and the church fathers used in our statement that we believe in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And hypostasis is used for the word person in that formula. And that formula was worked through by the church councils because of a number of differing views that were taking away the divinity of Jesus and that were taking away the divinity of the Holy Spirit or just making the Holy Spirit just simply the power of God or the Son of God just simply as the Word of God, taking away that quite distinct nature of the three persons that both Jesus and Paul proclaimed, that we believe that there are three persons in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that word for person is hypostasis. So what then is the writer trying to say to us about faith and what it does? And this is what O. Michael in his German book says, the purpose of the statement is not so much to encourage subjective assurance of faith as if faith could give the status of reality to what lies ahead in the future. So what he means by that, and what the writer of Hebrew means is that this isn't subjective faith, it isn't like my faith will make it happen, it's not in any sense like that at all. It's not like if we will just hold our faith, then it will happen. That's not what the writer is saying. Rather, it is to secure a firm link with objectivity. So what the writer is proclaiming is that our faith links us with what God is going to do in the future whether we are there or not. And the crux of having faith is to ensure we are going to be there when God does it. That's the sense of what this verse is saying. And the combination of those two words for hypostasis, for substance, assurance, confidence, the reality of being sure that it's going to happen, that's the first word, and the second, the conviction, the evidence, the knowing that it is real, that it's going to happen. They are the two words that are brought together to give us a sense that God is calling us to have faith in what he has said he is going to do in the future. Because you don't need faith if he's already done it. We might say, hey, we're going to have faith that we're going to build a church on this property. Well, we've done that. Our faith comes in. Well, the next church is not only see 200 people, it's going to see 800 people. Well, we're going to need faith for that one. So there is the faith element, if that's what God is saying, where we're going. We don't need faith to say, hey, we need faith to have this church here, because we already got it. So faith in the sense of hope, that is that which is coming into the future of which we're expecting. And what these words do is it links us so clearly with something that God himself is going to do. And the question is whether we're going to miss it.
Reinhold Bolke, who's a German evangelist, noted that God spoke to him one night and said, I want you to put a Christian track in every letterbox in Germany. And before he could respond, God says, are you going to say no like the other two characters said no? Now, we've heard of Reinhold Bolke. We haven't heard of the other two because they said no. When God did that, they weren't there. But Reinhold Bolke acted on what God asked him to do and did it. And they say that on the night before it was go out, he didn't have the money in the bank until the day the money was due. That God turned up and God did an awesome thing. So faith is the substance of things hoped for or the assurance of things hoped for and it is the conviction of the evidence of what God is going to do if we step up to the mark and obey him in the process. Because what faith does is it brings us to a point of obeying what God has asked us to do. That's all our part. It's simply doing what God has asked us to do. Now the writer to the Hebrews goes on and lists a whole group of people who effectively did what God asked and sometimes without ever in their own lifetime seeing the promise. And he says that we who have now seen the promise, how much more should we believe in what God is doing? Now he concludes with giving us some instructions about what we can do to maintain that faith. And the first thing is to throw off anything that hinders us. Not only do we throw off things that we might do wrong, which is sin, and it comes to that in a moment, but the things that slow us down, the things that crowd our time, the things that take away our energy, the things that deplete us, so that when God calls, we're not able to get up and run. We're not able to get up and do what he asks us to do because we've worn ourselves out on so many unnecessary things. Now, not many important things, but if we check our diaries, if we check what takes up our daily time, there's a lot of junk in there. There's a lot of stuff that we don't really need to do and we need to remove that, to throw that off, to throw off anything that hinders us or stumbles us in having that faith to see us there when God does what he said he was going to do. The second thing he says is that we need to disengage ourselves from sin. Now, sin is not just simply doing bad things. The word sin means to miss the mark. Like an archer when he's firing an arrow and he misses the target, that's what the word sin means, to miss the mark. So it's not just simply doing terrible things, but not doing what we ought to be doing when we ought to do it. I remember one of the key actions that I did that brought us to Brisbane, and that was that I was studying at Ridley College, doing a doctoral course, and the lecturer wasn't the greatest lecturer, was a little bit mean at times, and my heart wasn't really in it, and I was due to be at the lecture that Thursday, and I decided that I didn't need to go, I could just do my essays and pass the course, but I would go because it's where I should be, and so I went. And while we're having coffee break, two of the pastors from 
Southern Cross Bible College, asked me if I would fill in for one of their lecturers who was away. So I gave three weeks of lectures on drug abuse and why young people go into drugs. And at the end of that, the principal of the college said, look, we need to talk. You've done so well with this, which we'd like you to join our staff. And he made me head of faculty of ministry formation in this Pentecostal college. And that's incredibly unbelievable that a Pentecostal college would employ an Anglican priest to train them in ministry. And as a result of that, we ended up in Queensland from a number of steps. I always wonder if I had not have gone to the lecture where I needed to be or should be, whether that invitation would have ever come. So we need to be where God wants us to be, when he wants us to be, and to do what he wants us to do, because then we collide with his purpose. We actually meet his purpose in the midst of our obedience. We're to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, how many of us would really get a thrill if I said, right, next Sunday we're all going to run around the block? Who's in for it? That's not what the Hebrew writer is asking us to do. He's asking us to run a spiritual race, nothing to do with our physical capabilities. To run the race that is set before us, to run the race that was made up for us to run. And we each have a different race and road to run. We will intersect and we'll meet at different points, but we all are different in that call and we all have an agenda from God that he's asking us to fulfill. And then he says, and this is the most important statement, to fix our eyes on Jesus. You know, you can't do this if you haven't got your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So we can't have perfect faith unless we are focused and fixed on Jesus himself, empowered by his love, empowered by his strength, empowered by his inspiration to go for the things that he wants us to do. Jesus who endured the cross and scorned its shame. You know, Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven and received into the presence of Father God. But he scorned the shame. In other words, he wore the shame that the cross would give him because he was in love with God and Father God and Son of the Holy Spirit were so caring about us that he was willing to wear the shame for us. And you know, as we follow that road with Jesus and we're fixed on him, we're going to be ridiculed, we're going to be rebuked, we're going to be criticised. I'm sure you don't like criticism like I don't like criticism. But we are to wear the shame of walking that road, of doing what Jesus wants us to do. If he scorned the shame, we should scorn the shame. Yep, we're going to be in boots and all, no matter what it brings, no matter who misunderstands, no matter what criticism arises, no matter what rocks are thrown at us, to scorn the shame, to wear it with Jesus, no matter what they say, no matter how they misunderstand, that we are so fixed on him, that we go to the cross with him and we wear the shame that he wore. And it says, then he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Isn't that awesome? 
that the end of this road is we're going to be welcomed into the presence of the Father. We're going to live in eternity for him. Imagine what it's like at the end of time and we're all lined up at the judgment seat. And as we're coming up, Jesus nudges the Father. He's one of ours. I know him. Yeah, he's been walking with us for a decade. And look at her. She's been doing it for 80 years. Just walking the road that we asked her to. Isn't that going to be an awesome thought? Well, the other option is, I don't know who he is. Do you know who he is? No, no idea who this person is. That's not what we want at the end of days. We want to be known by God, welcomed into eternity with him. Having fixed our eyes upon Jesus and race the race set before us. Let us pray. Father God, Help us to secure faith in our own hearts and minds that not only will we hear what you're doing but respond and run with you the race you've called us to run. So enthuse us, Lord, anew that we will go through anything to see your purpose fulfilled. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to hear more great messages from Pastor Andrew, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.